0: Hello captives and captive friends and welcome to episode 27 of the Global Captive Podcast supported by legacy Specialists R&Q. As regular listeners will have seen, we have been releasing a lot of extra content in the past few weeks as we continue to cover different captive insurance aspects of the coronavirus pandemic. The latest release was on 9th of April when Mark Cook, director at Willis Towers Watson, provided some really great insights on the exposures and Um, those facing international employee benefits programs. If you have not heard that yet, then I do recommend it as a very valuable listen. And in the second half of this episode, there'll be a short clip from my conversation with Mark. The captive owner interview this week is with Frank Barron. Frank is the Group Deputy Director of Risk Management and Insurance at International SOS, but also Chairman of Parima, Asia's Risk and Insurance Management Association. And to reinforce a bit of that Asian theme to this episode, our guest co-host on the line is Farah Jafar Crosby, Chief Executive Officer of the Labuan International Business and Financial Centre of Malaysia. Farah will explain a bit more about Labuan in a moment. But first, Farah, welcome to the pod. Thank you
1: very much for having me, Richard. It's a pleasure.
0: Farah, uh, thank you for joining us from Malaysia. How is, how is your work from home setup? up? How's, how's it been for you in the lockdown?
1: Well, this is our third week into lockdown and we're expecting another couple of weeks or so. Generally, everyone goes through the day pretty relatively sane to begin with, and then cabin and then cabin fever sets in at about dinner time. But you know, it's been good. Um, we work on Teams um, and Zoom, and it's it's quite seamless. The problem is, I think a lot of people assume that working from home is easy, but actually, it's a lot more demanding because it's
0: quite seamless so yeah it's it's been an interesting experience it can be it can be hard to step away from the computer can't it when you're working from home it's easy just to have the laptop running in the background in a in a a spare room or whatever and and checking that more than you might be checking it ordinarily when you when you do clock off from work
1: yeah absolutely and um and people seem to think that as well so Mm. there's so much more coming through in that sense and of course my son is also working from home uh so, yeah, so it's, it's been an interesting time, but I, I look forward to
0: things normalising, I'm sure, like all your listeners. Absolutely. And what is broadly the situation in Malaysia, then, and how has been the, the response to coronavirus there?
1: We've taken a very proactive approach with regards to trying to flatten the curve. Um, and so we have seen it flattening, and that's fantastic. However, because of the nature of the virus, it tends to grow rapidly so you've got first generation second generation sometimes five generations um, into a particular cluster which we are finding quite challenging in trying to isolate so but things are good we've got a great ministry of uh, health and um, we're looking forward to going back Labuan uh, Labuan itself has only got uh, Labuan island per se it's only got 13 um, cases So we're we're quite happy with that.
0: Yeah, we're hoping for the best. Fantastic. And just before then, we get into a bit of the Labuan specific response to coronavirus. It'd be great for you, Farah, just to inform our listeners if they're not already aware of kind of the role and status of Labuan as a captive domicile, its relationship to Malaysia and the role of the IBFC as well.
1: Sure, so I, I represent the market development arm of the jurisdiction um, and we are wholly owned subsidiary of the regulator, which sits under the, the Labon Financial Services Authority, which sits directly under the Ministry of Finance of Malaysia. So really, if you look at Malaysia as one country, two systems, onshore Malaysia being Bank Negara Central Bank Malaysia, offshore, midshore Malaysia being Labuan Financial Services Authority. So really our focus is very much on intermediating Asian business, um, facilitating Malaysian risk leaving Malaysia um, and being the first right of refusal for a lot of those cases. To be honest with you, the risk management uh, insurance, reinsurance industry in Labuan has Grown on the back of being a home for the first right of refusal for domestic business. Since then, we've been around 30 years. This year is our 30th anniversary as a jurisdiction. A lot of people didn't realize that.
0: Well, congratulations. Thank you.
1: And for the first, well, I'd say 15, 20 years, the focus has been very much on trying to get Malaysian um, risk placed outside Malaysia more cost efficiently as we grew as a you know, economically as a country, just to ensure that the risk management of Malaysian uh, companies is intact. In, in Since then, however, I think our efficiency and um, responsiveness has created a very conducive environment for ASEAN and ASEAN linked entities. So we've seen that growth. Today, I'm happy to report that actually the bulk of premiums coming through Labuan is no longer Malaysian based.
0: Yeah, wow. So it shows that 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 foreign expansion absolutely, and we'll we'll come on to a bit of that in in a, in a moment. So then, regarding Labuan's response to the. The pandemic. Obviously, obviously, you said great news, but very few number of cases itself in Lab 1. But how has the regulator had to respond? Has there been any particular steps in relation to things like board meetings or or continuing governance? Because we, we covered this a bit in a previous episode of the podcast in relation to some of the other international domiciles, Guernsey, Vermont, Cayman, having to kind of change some of their their board meetings because you know board meetings can't take place right now in those jurisdictions so has there needed to be any of those kind of steps taken in lab one
1: we've already allowed for that um as we saw this start growing i mean you have to remember that Labuan one is a very uh, popular jurisdiction with asians um, a lot of the business that we do is chinese uh based and covid obviously you know, unfortunately began in China. So we've had to deal um, with this limitation from a very early onset of the year. And um, informally, we had already allowed for remote board meetings and things like that. And what's happened in the last couple of days, and you'll see announcements coming through, is that we've had a more extensive allowance. So not only do we allow for online board meetings, we've also reduced requirements for, let's say, valuation of reinsurance liabilities, submission of accounts, uh, more practical things like, you know, setting up a law-on company in order to house your insurance uh, program or your insurance license things like commission of oath you know the requirements for a statutory declaration now that is going to be allowed to be done remotely for the moment so really you know we're a little bit ahead um being in asia um but a public announcement um actually came out today
0: what i'll do farah is i'll also add that to our episode description so listeners can take a further look at that in, in more detail and i believe also uh, more broadly the financial services community in The jurisdiction has also begun a a relief fund to assist local authorities in in combating the virus. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: This is something I'm extremely proud to share, to be honest, because what has happened is that Lovon's got about five different associations, industry-led associations that drive um, each vertical. So you've got the Insurance Association, um, which actually is the largest by number, because there's more than 200 insurance-linked license holders. Um, and then you've got the corporate service providers, you've got the bankers, you've got a fintech association, and you've got invest an investment bank association. And these uh, associations have come together to set up a COVID relief fund. And at the moment, we're, we're helping to kind of run it as a secretariat. In the last week, we've collected pledges up to more than 700,000 ringgits. Um, which is equivalent to about less about two hundred or thousand a bit less than two hundred or thousand US dollars, just to help Labour Nights. You know the frontliners the less fortunate and it's very much as part of this whole substance enabling jurisdiction that we're after you know and the only way to have a real substance enabling jurisdiction is to have a real location to be part of and it's fantastic the work that they've done and we're, we're very very happy to
0: um, assist fantastic that is great news and we look forward to um, following developments in lab one on that basis in the future well to expand Further on the impact of COVID-19 in Asia and on the captive market specifically, I spoke with Frank Baron, the Group Deputy Director of Risk Management and Insurance at International SOS, but also Chairman of Prima, Asia's Risk and Insurance Management Association. Frank started by explaining what Prima's immediate response has been to the pandemic. <laughs>
2: This uh, very specific uh, question uh, regarding Parima, Richard, is, is calling for, a, 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 I would say, a big picture comment, comment first. Uh, the, for me, this COVID-19 situation is, is the very first in my whole career and even in, my, uh, in my, if my memory serves me well in terms of history uh, of the risk management function, the very first time we had a situation which, which is impacting all countries all populations, all industries, everybody, personally and professionally. Uh, so there is a, when you look at a situation like this, there is no rest. Everything is impacted. And it's a massive challenge to all of us. Going to your question now, it's Parima it's it's for Parima like Hermic, Ferma, and Rims of the World. It was about okay, am I going to have to change a little bit my Conference planning, event planning and stuff. It it was it was obviously much more than that. So it was for us a, a very strong wake-up call, like for any other organization in the world, where we were like, okay, this is what's happening, what is needed to support our community of members and partners, and we changed dramatically the way we are structuring and de- developing things. So uh, Parima is doing is doing well, knowing that. I think that we have been no humility here, but I think that we have been brave uh, and proactive enough to understand it. maybe because we were in Asia, so we so we saw it coming, obviously. We said, okay, uh, the next six to eight months, forget about any physical interactions. No events, no conferences uh, can be sustained. So that's why we we were the first association in the world to uh, launch uh, what we call the dynamic huddles. So it's basically digital workshops where we are inviting members every Monday, Mo- Monday morning, Singapore time, uh, Monday afternoon, Singapore time. Sorry. Um, we are inviting our members to be part of a Zoom meeting where we are exchanging in terms of the professional and even personal challenges we are facing with a few uh, uh, keynote speakers or panelists to to, uh, to provide some expertise or some feedback about what, this is what's happening in this industry or in that function, etc. So it has been a massively successful, and will continue to do so. And uh, yeah, it's a it's a, it's a long answer to your question, Richard. But but uh, it has been for us a very a very, uh, a very uh, I would say a, a kind of wake up call. Let's put it this way.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and I can I can empathise with a lot of those discussions and actions you've been taking from my continued role at Airmic as well. And I think you know we're calling it the virtual association, and it's been really really interesting to see and and quite heartening to see the quick response of various associations. So I applaud your efforts in uh, Prima as well. So then I think we'll talk a bit more about some of the the other elements of Prima later. But first of all, just to tell us a bit about the company that you do work for, Frank, uh, International SOS, and and they have a captive in Singapore. Can you just tell us a little bit about the profile of International SOS and, and the captive you have?
2: Well, it's uh, it's uh, it's uh, it's extremely topical, <laughs> not just because I'm, I'm, I'm participating to this podcast to you, but but because of the very nature of uh, of uh, the services of International SOS. We are in a, a, a travel risk management, medical, and security type of services company. So basically, COVID nineteen is massively calling for services on our end to support our clients, and our clients are organizations like corporations, but also governments and uh, international NGOs. An organization so so we have been massively uh, I would say positively impacted in terms of surge of activities to be rendered in terms of prevention taking care of people evacuating people repatriating people and and providing the proper guidance to uh, to companies and it was uh, as you know uh, because of the growing nature of covid 19 it has been uh, it was it was extremely needed for clients to get this type of guidance and uh, we have a very large operation in uh, in in uh, in China and actually we we have a clinic in Wuhan where the, the whole thing started and we have a few international doctors there. Uh, one of, the, one of our, my French colleagues, the doctor, Philippe Klein, uh, uh, refused to leave and stayed there to take care of people and he's is, and is still there. And we, we, so we saw it. We saw it from the, the end of December. We saw it coming. And uh, so, 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 yes, that's for International SOS. So that, this, is a, this has been for us a, a tremendous journey uh, internally in terms of uh, making sure that we can support our clients While being at the same time impacted impacted by COVID-19 like any other organization in the world, so it has been a massive massive challenge to us. Uh, So that's for International SOS. It's headquartered of uh, it's a it's a it's a privately held company. It's headquartered out of Singapore. Eleven thousand employees in 94 countries. So so we have a very large geographical footprint. Uh, We have a captive, as you said. We we had historically we had a captive out of Switzerland and for. For compliance and business plan reason, I would say, we decided to to decommission it and to create a, a new captive out of Singapore about six years ago now.
0: On the broader kind of captives in Asia landscape, of course, you have a, a very a good perspective on this through, through your close involvement and, and running of Perima. So how would you characterize the states of captive insurance generally in, in the Asia region?
2: Okay um the the politically correct answer would be it's a, it's a it's a growing market
0: uh, <laughs>
2: very encouraging the non the less politically correct answer would be it's still frustrating to me uh, I, I can see a, a few improvements i can see uh, pockets of developments but it's still not it's still not yet enough in terms of uh, creation of new captive tools and and maturity of the market and uh, and for me, there is a few reasons for that. The, the very first one is that uh, if you look at the uh, at the US and or in the European market, uh, they have, I would say, uh, a kind of uh, homogeneous type of market in terms of regulatory environment. If you look at the US and and even with the European Union in Europe, in in Asia we don't have that such thing. So Asia does not does not exist as as one thing. It's it's a it's a myriad of different countries, cultures and, and regulations. So it does not help. Uh, What does not help as well is the fact that uh, uh, there is still a lack of, uh, I would say a lack of awareness about the tool, a lack of sophistication when it, uh, when it comes to risk financing. Where insurance is still seen as a very community-based type of uh, purchase, and 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 let's be honest, I think also a, a lack of maturity in terms of risk management, in terms of uh, because because captive is, is, is about risk management at the end of the day, It's an insurance tool, but it's uh, it's risk management, and uh, the lack I would say the lack of awareness about about uh, what what true risk management means in certain countries for certain I would say uh, communities and markets. Uh, makes it still a very uh, a very uh, small type of uh, captive market compared to the US or compared to Europe.
0: So you mentioned there about the kind of lack of emphasis perhaps on the captive as a risk management tool. Is that one of the key messages you think that needs to to spread further within the Asian market for captives to see greater utilization?
2: Oh yes, definitely. Uh, but, but uh, and this is uh, some of the struggle we are in uh, and, and for me the main one is relates to the to the timing. So because of the hardening market, you have a lot of companies, a lot of corporations, a lot of members of Parima are telling the market, I want want a captive. I need a captive and I need it fast. I need it now. And uh, and obviously, it can't happen this way. A sensible captive implementation requires time because first of all, and we go back to the weakness I mentioned to you, first of all, you need a very strong and clear buy-in from your top management in your organization. It it should not be seen as just a way to uh, stomach part of the hardening market uh, uh, consequences. And this is, I think, part of the the frustration, but also, also part of the solution, which is about making sure that risk manager will have the sophisticated dialogue they need to have with the proper decision makers first to make it a strategic risk financing tool. Because at the end of the day, insurance and captives are strategic risk financing tools and should be valued this way. And should not be seen just as a mundane purchase here and there
0: yeah absolutely couldn't couldn't agree more, and we've been discussing that a lot even with our european and our, and our American guests over the last twelve months in this hardening market, so I just want to uh, touch on the hardening market a, a bit more detail frank what what has been the general kind of Asian experience of this hardening market Are you having as tough a time as as we're having in in Europe and america
2: actually uh, you know what yes yes and no i mean uh, no uh, no in the sense that uh, Asia has been a very aggressively cheap market for years. I'm taking the risk of surprising you here, Richard, because I'm representing <laughs> the, the insurance buyers for Parima. But uh, I still believe that insurance was too cheap in, in, uh, in Asia. And why so? Because why cheap? Because, because first of all, when something is not priced correctly, there is no room for you, no way for you to convince your management that insurance is a strategic, is a strategic tool and a strategic purchase. More importantly, we, we know for a fact that for years, insurers were pricing insurance in Asia, not taking into account large-scale catastrophic events. So especially for the, on, the, on the PNC and property BI uh, part, because they didn't add commercially speaking, I would say, enough room to say, if I do a proper underwriting and if I want to have the proper, let's say, reserving for large-scale events, this is how much I should ask my client to pay. And it was extremely difficult to do that. And it's even more more frustrating is the, is the fact that when you had, a, let's say, a very solid and robust risk management processes in place, which let's say my company, let's say International SOS was properly equipped in terms of risk management, I had no room. To convince the market that my pricing should be different from others. Because for, for them, yeah. because the price was so low, it was like, I'm going to treat everybody the same. And, and this is where, as you can see, the, the insurance pricing was not helping companies to go for, for a virtuous cycle, which is about if I have the proper loss prevention program, risk engineering program, risk management program, then I'm going to get a preferred pricing from the market. And then you can see the financial leverage being created thanks to the uh, virtuous improvements being made in terms of risk management. So yes, the market is hardening in Asia, big time. Not so much in terms of pricing, to a a certain extent, especially on some business insurance lines like aviation, for instance, or or marine cargo. But a lack of capacity is happening. A lack of appetite for sophisticated coverage is happening. And this is where companies are, are, are becoming extremely impacted uh, by, by this
0: and then just lastly you you touched uh, upon uh, this this kind of um, challenge in uh, bef- before, but so do you think then that the this hardened market is making or encouraging Asian corporations to reconsider or look at the captive as as an option? do you think that's that 's one of the prompts now
2: uh, let me share with you first an anecdote to answer your question This is what exactly what i 'm doing with my own captive. This is what we decided to do uh, 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 recently. Uh, with, the, with the, the owners of the company. We said, we have the captive. The captive is already involved in a few different programs. So we, we do both PNC and employee benefits. And we, we, we decided to leverage on this existing tool to buffer partially, to stomach partially, a little bit of the, uh, of the stupidity of the hardening market, if you, if you allow me the expression. Uh, because we do believe that we have a good risk profile. We do believe that we have a good risk management track record. And what is what is expecting from the market today in terms of premium, is not is not uh, I would say is not relevant to our risk profile and our and our loss history. And uh, so so I'm fighting against a few carriers to to go back to something a bit more sensible. Not easy uh, because they are definitely looking at uh, more money. Especially now with COVID nineteen impacting them on, on different businesses and different ground, so 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 yes, that that's the first thing to do is to you can you can leverage on a on a on a captive to to stomach uh, a lack of appetite from the market. But the thing is that you need to have the captive in place first, and you need the captive to be up and running first with some good uh, financial, some uh, good credit worthiness, and and I would say more importantly the right facility internally in terms of engaging with our critical uh, uh, stakeholders so that uh, the right decision can be made at the right time to, uh, to react to market. So I, I like the idea that our own captive, for instance, is used on a very dynamic mode. So we are not saying that, uh, let's say, our corporate insurance program, ABC, uh, will be reinsured uh, into our captive partially or fully forever. But for the timing, we consider that that's the right time for the captive to be used. So I like the, the fact that you can have a dynamic approach, but for that, you need also to have the, the proper uh, conversation with your final decision makers uh, in order to lead to the right decision.
0: Paul, they say there's more than one way to skin a cat, and I believe that's also true of offloading legacy liabilities. Yes, Richard, it is. You don't need to sell or dispose of your captive to release capital back to the parent or indeed to recycle it for future use in the captive. So, what are the different options? Well, you can execute a lost portfolio transfer, which is a reinsurance structure, undertake an insurance business transfer enter into
3: Novation or a deductible reimbursement policy. There's a whole range of solutions.
0: And RNQ has experience in all of these types of transactions. Indeed, Richard, that's right. Q has completed over 70 legacy transactions with captive insurers and other self-insurance vehicles in traditional offshore jurisdictions, as well as those in the European Union and across the US. For the second year, R&Q is the headline partner for the Global Captive Podcast for 2020. You can find more information and contact details for their experts on globalcaptivepodcast.com. If you have legacy, you should contact RQ. Welcome back to the Global Captive Podcast, where I am joined by Farah Jafar Crosby, CEO of Labuan IBFC. Before the break, we were discussing the role of Labuan as a captive domicile. And now that we're at that time of year, when we generally have all the captive statistics in for the different jurisdictions around the world. So Farah, how did how did 2019 shape up for, for Labuan on, on captive formations and activity?
1: The official numbers will have to come from the Director General himself. And we are at the throes of launching what we call a industry update, which will talk about um, overall the jurisdiction in 2019 and how we've performed. But for your listeners, Richard, I can share with you that we clocked in about 1.5 billion in total premiums, US dollars, for Van itself in that that whole space of insurance, reinsurance, of which 30% of those premiums belong to captives. And that represents a growth of about 14, 15% year on year. Really, there is growth in captives in one I'm not going to talk about numbers, um, specific numbers, and, and I'm going to leave that to the Director General, but I thought your listeners should have a bit of a scoop. Um, and I know you always like a scoop. Always. Always. Looking forward into the pipeline, I can tell you for fact, that the protected cell company, of which we are the only jurisdiction in Asia that offers protected cell companies, those, um, those are looking extremely, extremely popular. Um, and I think one of the reasons moving forward is, or currently actually, is the fact that there are a lot more entities that are quite diverse in nature. And because of the substance requirements that have started to kick in, What has happened is that they're looking at amalgamating activities at the core. So what you're looking at is actually not necessarily one entity, but entities with common shareholding structures coming together, which we allow, that then create cells for each different business, which then can leverage of the substance requirements that we have. So really the protected cell company is something that I would look into quite closely because of the substance requirements, as I've said earlier, and also the cost efficiency. So the pipeline's looking a lot more PCCs, a lot more association captives and a lot more tucker for captives, actually.
0: Yeah, of course. And I think the the really interesting thing about that premium growth as well is that whether it's from new formations or expanding captives or both, it's a great sign that obviously captives are being utilised um, either through the new formations or existing captives growing their, their premium base, which is, of course, also a very... Very healthy sign, so you mentioned they're obviously expecting continued interest and more interest in the in the PCC facilities in lab one. where has interest in in new captive formations generally been coming from over the past 18 months kind of geographically or or industry specific
1: definitely Asia I think a lot of people are starting a lot of companies are starting to look at captives no longer as something that only belongs to a certain size of company. I think a lot of people are starting to really understand the message that we're trying to, you know, we've been we've been pushing out into the market that you can afford one of these vehicles and you should start looking at these vehicles. You can't start looking at these vehicles where the market gets too hard. But we do believe that in the hardening market. You know that, that we're expecting this year and moving forward especially with COVID unfortunately hitting us like this you will start seeing a lot more interest in captives.
0: That's great Vera and as mentioned at the start of the episode on the 9th of April we released the latest podcast in our COVID-19 series focusing on the different elements of captive insurance that are being impacted by the coronavirus pandemic that episode explored the exposure international employee benefits programs are facing today and are expected to experience over the next 12 months my expert guest was mark cook of willis towers watson and here he is addressing the need for hr risk and finance to work together to strike the right balance between looking after employees and managing the exposure of the captive during the coronavirus pandemic so I've been a, a big advocate
3: of this, 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 this discussion for many, many years. EB captive models were really, they really came into being successful because of the collaboration between those two, those two stakeholders. Um, I see more now a collaboration need and you've hit the nail on the head. The risk, the, the, sorry, the finance guys, the exposure, the risk management, et cetera, is really important. Business continuity with the HR, it's the people. Part of the discussion we had on Monday was around the human capital stuff to do. So what do we need to think about from the people perspective? What does the company need to think about? Obviously, exposure financing is part of it. But a big part of that discussion was around companies needing to take the opportunity to communicate more and more about people first, business second in this environment. It's a a time of very very sensitive for employees, very sensitive for key talent. Um, so we're seeing from, I suppose what I'm trying to say, Richard, is the broader HR agenda is 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 very important at the moment in terms of engagement and communication with employees. Um, and there was quite a lot of discussion I was involved in on Monday about this. And you're right, the balance between that and the finance impact, the financial impact and the risk impact, yeah, is a trick. Is, is yeah, And so I don't think there's any quick, thick answer. I just think the collaboration here is vitally important, consistent messaging and the understanding of the exposure and helping HR communicate what they need to communicate.
0: Well, that is pretty much all we have time for this time. So I would like to say thank you to Farah for joining me on the pod. Thank you, Farah thank you
1: very much Richard it's been a pleasure
0: good luck this year but I'm really hoping I can get out to Malaysia and Asia later in 2020 to record some more podcast content and catch up with many of my my good friends out there so hopefully I'll I'll see you soon Farah thank you also to Frank Barron of International SOS and Prima and to Mark Cook of Willis Towers Watson see you next time captives